0: All right, well, welcome, everybody. Uh, it's good to see you today. Chapter 5 is the uh, beginning of David consolidating his, both his power as the king as well as consolidating his uh, position among the 12 tribes. What is really important about that is that you have to remember this, that during Saul's reign, Judah got preference. Judah and Benjamin got preference, and the rest of the tribes didn't, and so there's already a, a division that is growing. David is going to try to unify that, and he will achieve that for a period of time. And so, what is important in verse in verse six is part of that. And I'll get to that in just a minute. I I believe we did cover the first five verses, so let me just read them again. It just kind of remind you of where we are. Uh, the year is 1004, 1004 BC. If you're interested in chronology, or if you're interested in dates, I am as an historian, so I always try to, when we know something for certain, I try to share that. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Remember, Hebron is in the land grant of Judah. It is the largest, at that time, the largest city in that land grant. It is a Levitical city. So it's a very important city, and it is also, I hope you remember, where Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Rebecca—they're all buried there. So I mean, it it has so much significance, both in terms of its position, its role as a biblical city, it's the largest city. Plus, it is where all the patriarchs are, are buried, and so it's extremely important city. That's where David had ruled. And as we learned from the previous chapter, we're going to see it again in this, he rules there for seven and a half years. So and it says, all the tribes of Israel, I just want to remind you, these are the ones that were in rebellion against David. They had joined with Ishbosheth, which is the previous chapter, and leading that, what in effect, was a civil war that went on for about two years. Ishbosheth is dead, Abner is dead. Remember Joab killed him. So these disparate tribes of the north come all the way down to to southern Judah, to Hebron, and say, Behold, we are your your bone and flesh. In the past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said, This is what the the ten tribes are saying to David, You shall be the shepherd of my people, Yahweh said, and you shall be prince over Israel. All the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. King David made a covenant with them in heaven before the Lord and anointed David king over Israel. He is now king over all 12 tribes. That is, that is an amazing acknowledgement by those other tribes. What God had prophesied to David years earlier, back in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, is now coming to fruition. And he will rule, it tells us in verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven and a half years, seven years, seven, six months, and Jerusalem, 33 years. So that's how it breaks down. But when the tribes came to him at Hebron, he did not yet control Jerusalem. That's what verse six is all about. So I want to talk a little bit about Jerusalem. I want to talk about why it's important. Jerusalem, um, as a city, is one of the most uh, ancient cities, one of the oldest cities, really in the world, but certainly in the Middle East, in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, it goes back at least four thousand years, in terms of the excavations and what we know about it. I, I want to remind you of Genesis 14. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. So it, it originally is called Salem. He was the king of that. He was also the priest of God there. But remember, he meets Abraham as he's coming down after uh, rescuing Lot from Ketaleom and those other kings. That's part of that story. So it, that's a very important city. Then about 1850 B.C., the Canaanites, a tribe called the Jebusites, conquered Jerusalem. And they they began to build a wall around it. They began to fortify it, and that that is now I 1850. We're now at 1004 1004 <laughs> BC. So that's about you know roughly 800 years or so later. Why does David want to conquer Jerusalem? Because it belongs to a Canaanite tribe. No other none of the other 12 tribes regarded as important, it is not in Jewish control. So he wants to conquer Jerusalem and make it his capital. That's a very shrewd act on his part, because it will will demonstrate that he's not showing preference to any of the tribe, and especially to his tribe, which is Judah. Technically, Jerusalem is in the land grant of Benjamin. It's right on the border between the two, but technically it's in the land grant of Benjamin. So to take Jerusalem is a very, very significant act on his part, diplomatically in terms of the 12th Tribes, but also in terms of its location. 2,500 feet above sea level, it's almost impregnable as a city. So the question is, how did David get it? Now, if you take a look at this map, which I referred to last week, and, and a number of you have it. There's a lot on this, but you wanna look at the key, you know what the, the key of the map is, you know, what's the key? What, I'm, what i want to draw your attention to is number six and number seven. Number six, and you have to look over, there's a, it's like two gates there. That is the entrance to the Gihon Spring. This is what made Jerusalem so important. There was a spring, you know what a spring is, don't you? Water, fresh water. Because any city that has a wall around it has two problems. Problem number one is how are they going to have enough water? And you, you, this is you know before all the kinds of things we do where we build these huge, huge pipes and we just move water for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. They couldn't do that. So that made Jerusalem a very secure city because that spring is inside the city wall, and they will have a constant access to fresh water. So what David does is he tells his commander in chief, Joab, take Jebus. That's what it was called, named after the Jebusites. Take Jebus. Now, the, 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 the one thing we don't have is a very detailed account of this. I looked at the account in First Chronicles on Monday when I do my studying, as I was getting ready for class, and the, the Chronicles account doesn't tell us very much more than the Second Samuel account does. But this we know. It's a walled city, heavily fortified, and it's got an eternal source of water, the Gihon Spring. But Joab discovers something. That Gihon Spring has an outsource. If they can get to that outsource, they can go inside the tunnel. And climb up up the tunnel, and they'll be inside the city. They don't have to. They don't have to knock the walls down. They don't have to lay siege to it. They can conquer the city from inside. It's like in, in, if you've ever read the Iliad. It's like the Trojan War when they make that gift to the Trojans, and it's a horse, and what's in the horse? A whole bunch of Greek soldiers. <laughs> you know that story. Well, this is not exactly, but it's how. It's an amazing story. And if you ever go to Jerusalem, it depends on your guide and it depends on the time you have, you can go down. You can see where the Gihon Spring is, and you can see some of the tunnels. When I lead tours, we walk Hezekiah's tunnel, which is the tunnel that King Hezekiah built when Sennacherib was laying siege to his city, which is another story. So this is just an incredible, an incredible fortified city. So what happens in verse six? Is the author of 2 Samuel tells us the story of how David, and really his commander in chief, Joab, took this city. Look at verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusite. I've already told you in 1850 BC, the Jebusites conquered Jerusalem and made it a Canaanite city. The inhabitants, this is really interesting, the inhabitants of the land who said to David, You will not come in here. But the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come here. What does that mean when they say to Joab and his armies, and David and his armies, you will not come in here, the blind and the lame will ward you off? They're taunting David. In effect, what they're saying, our city is impregnable. You will never conquer Jerusalem, or Jebus, as it was called at that time, thinking David cannot come. No, no. Since they took it in 1850 B.C., no other, there's been no other successful conquest of Jerusalem, or Jebus at that time. Nevertheless, verse 7, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now, what the author is doing is the author is using the names that David will use when he conquers the city. It's going to become Zion, and it's going to become the city of David. And throughout the Bible, yeah, I'm going to draw back on that, but I won't. Throughout the Bible, next to Jerusalem as the name, the most common reference to this city is Zion, Z I O N, and it's this. And it, there is no question about this. Jerusalem, in the eyes of God, is the most important city on planet Earth. Would that be one of the reasons why there's so much controversy? over Jerusalem. Could that possibly be the reason? What other being in the universe does not want Jerusalem to be an important city to God, want to do everything he can to rip it apart and destroy it and have it be in constant upheaval? Satan. Satan means adversary, the adversary of God. And so, I mean, I've studied this from a lot of different vantage points over over the, the course of my life. But Jerusalem is a city that has been invaded and laid siege to at least 40 times. It has completely conquered and burned to the ground twice. It's been rebuilt and rebuilt and rebuilt and rebuilt and rebuilt. The city of Jerusalem today, if you ever go there, is a very large city, particularly the west they've developed. the modern city of Jerusalem. But the old, call it the old city. Still has the wall that Suleiman the Magnificent built around it in the, in the 16th century, the 1500s. That's the wall that goes around Jerusalem today. If you ever go there, and it, within the old city, that's within that wall. It's not really that large, is where you see all of the historic places associated with Jesus. You know where where he went on trial. Um, we think we know where he met with Pilate at the uh, at the uh, you know, Antonia Fortress in the northwest corner of, of Temple Mount, we we have a, a pretty good idea where the temple was. Of course, Temple Mount today is 39 acres. That's two major Muslim. There's the Dome of the Rock, which is a, is a, it's not a mosque. It's a it's a memorial to to Muhammad, and then Al Aqsa Mosque is on the south end of Temple Mount. But today, Jer- Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, is. There's so much archaeology going on. So many digs. And a couple of very important archaeologists, uh, Eliane Mazur and others, she has said she's passed away tragically, but she says she's found Solomon's temple. And most agree with that. There's no question they found David's palace. Tremendous excavation going there. So what we're talking about is all in this city. This is the old city of Jerusalem. To the north, here, and if you let your eye go to the north, is Mount Moriah. This is where the temple will be built. The temple is not going to be in that. The temple's north. Solomon, excuse me, David, we'll get to this at the end of our study a second. David will buy this land from the Jebusite. His name is Aruna. He will buy this land. And he will put the ark there. And he will say, I want to build the temple, but in chapter seven, God's going to say to him, No, you're not going to build the temple. Your son will build the temple. We're coming up to that next week. So I want you to get the geography. This is a very small area, actually. And that this whole area today, this whole area today is being is being excavated. They found the pool of Siloam, which is down here, which is not an, an Old Testament place. It's a New Testament place, but they found that tremendous to see that. I've been there several times. So this whole area is is just is bubbling with all kinds of archaeological finds. Almost every year they find something significant uh, in this area. It's just it's incredibly important. But it's really very small compared to other areas in the ancient world at this time. But David conquers it. So verse 8 then continues, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it was said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David took, now again, this this is frustratingly too short. I wish we had a very detailed account of how Joab did this, but we know this because we know what the shaft looks like. We know what the Gihon Spring looked like. We know what they did. It just doesn't give us the specific account. But Job and his men climbed up the shaft into the city itself and conquered it from inside. And so David, and that's what it's telling us, David made it his capital. Verse 9, David lived in the stronghold, called it the city of David. And he built the city all around from the Milo inward. Milo is a reference to the terraced because it's on a hill. And you know, even today when we build, you build you build terraces. You, know, you have like retaining walls. And the retaining wall, if you go there today, the number five, you look at number five, and you can see that today. That is very visible. That is a retaining wall that the Jebusites built in the 1800 BC. I mean, it's remarkable how much of this still can be seen today in 2024. And David conquered it, and David made all of this. He fortified the city, he built these terraces, and people began to live in the city. When I say people, I mean Jewish people began to live in the city. So he populated his capital city with Israelites, largely from the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, but others as well, because he hires a lot of people in his bureaucracy as the king. And then verse 10 is just a comment, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, Yahweh, God of hosts, is, was with him. So it's a, it's a statement of the importance of David taking Jerusalem, making it his capital city, the city of David, and how the Lord is blessing what he's doing. And so Jerusalem now becomes, and I have that in the introductory paragraph that I wrote there in our notes on 2 Samuel, this is diplomatically, militarily, and in terms of the unity of the tribes, the most important thing he could do, because what he's going to do next is he's going to bring the ark there, because at this point in time, the ark isn't in Jerusalem. The ark isn't in Hebron. You might remember the ark is in Karyat-Jerim, about 12 miles outside, roughly to the west of Jerusalem. We'll get to that in a minute
1: as well. And it seems like to me that, you know, in chapter 5, verse 6, here um, there are Satan's people who were
0: for Satan. There, there are what was that? There
1: are Satan's people who were for Satan, and those of God who were for God. And that's as current as it is today. Well, of course, yep, absolutely. You see, Hezbollah and other issues that are taking place. Yeah, and they are very sincere, very dedicated on both sides, and so this is this is temporary, I think.
0: Well, you're you're seeing this area, this real estate on planet Earth is the most controversial real estate on planet Earth. And it's the most controversial place of real estate on planet Earth because God considers it the most important city. His son will rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years. When Jesus returns in Revelation 19, he returns to Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives. He's going to set up his kingdom there. Jerusalem is the most important city in the world from God's perspective. And therefore, you would expect, knowing what you know about spiritual warfare and the cosmic battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil, that there's going to be a lot of upheaval. And that's, I mean, what you see in the Middle East, there was a period where there was some seemingly, maybe things are really settling down permanently in the Middle East. Well, October the 7th showed us that's not true you still have a very significant number of people in the Middle East who hate, thoroughly hate Jews. And they're gonna do everything they can to kill as many as they can. And to, you know, if you've ever seen that slogan, even university campuses in America, they were counting this sign from the river to the sea. If you've ever seen that phrase, what that means is we're gonna drive Israel to the sea. Well, people have talked like that for 4,000 years. And the people of Israel, the J- Jewish, I don't mean the nation state, still exist. And they're going to continue to exist because God has an unconditional covenant relationship with them. Can,
1: can you uh, give us a sequence of end times again, like this happens, this happens, and this happens, which you've done before, and it's been some time that uh, those questions sometimes pop up. And how would you sequence those?
0: As simply as I can put it, without going on a long bunny trail, the next event on God's program is Jesus coming for his church. That event is called the rapture. The most detailed account of that is in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Now, there's controversy where to put the rapture. We've disagreed that for hundreds and hundreds of years. But that, Then following that is a period of seven years, I, I believe it. Um, pre-trib so but anyway there's a period called, seven years daniel's 70th week jesus calls it the tribulation it's a period of intense suffering and that's recorded for us from revelation 6 through revelation 18.
1: do people come to know christ during
0: that oh absolutely in the main witness of the 144,000, revelation 7 then following that period of that Daniel 70th week that seven year period is the second coming of christ to earth rapture is he comes in the air the second coming he comes to earth he comes to the mount of olives there are a number of references in the bible that tell us that and he's going to march north to the jezreel valley at the campaign of armageddon destroy his enemies throw the uh, antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire and bind satan for a thousand years revelation chapter 20 six times a thousand years is mentioned and that is call it That's why we call it the millennium millennium is latin for a thousand a thousand years christ will rule the millennial kingdom of christ is fulfilling the abrahamic and davidic covenants uh there's just so much going on during that time there's a great deal of, of detail in isaiah and many others about what the kingdom is going to look like he's rule from jerusalem zechariah 14 says for a thousand years at the end of that thousand year period satan will be released will organize a final rebellion and will be instantly crushed. And he then will be thrown into the lake of fire. And then Jesus delivers up the kingdom to his father. You have the great white throne judgment, which is not for believers. The great white throne judgment is where the unregenerate, those who rejected God's grace for all time, are judged and cast into the lake of fire. The Bible tells us the lake of fire was created by God for Satan and his angels. But all of those who reject the grace of God also end up in the lake of fire. Then, with that judgment completed, then the eternal state, or what Revelation 21 and 22 call the new heaven and the new earth begins. And that's sort of an I'm going to preach on that this coming Sunday, in the last series of five messages on heaven. That
1: and I did then the last, the new heaven and the
0: new earth Where is it is. is that on earth's not here yet. Well, it's a new heaven and new. The Greek word for new is kine. It's not ex nihilo. God will recreate everything. So it will be heavens and earth. We will live on earth. It shows how, in other words, what was lost in Adam will be restored. Uh, the, the, the new earth is going to be a renewed, regenerated earth without sin, without the curse, without evil, and all who populate earth and, uh, and so on uh, will be in resurrected, glorified bodies. Uh, forever in fellowship with God. Sort of exciting, but I know we're not <laughs> excited
1: about biblical truth. I so, have uh, a question regarding the scripture we are studying, and it uh, seems like the Mount Moriah and the whole area where the temple resides now were, or was, it, was it, right, yeah. at some point was not part of the of Jerusalem, and there was an expansion during the time of David to include that area, right?
0: Well, what I, I'm not sure I would completely agree with that. It, in terms of the ancient boundary of Jerusalem, but it's like any city, you keep expanding its boundaries. So David buys the land of Mount Moriah from Arun the Jebusite. He buys it, makes it a part of his city.
1: But it, it, it seems like this is the kind of the birth of the importance of Jerusalem or Mount Moriah and so forth, but I understand that also has been of a high significance even before David during the time
0: of Abraham. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yep. I yeah. Well, this, I mean, it wasn't called Jerusalem at that time, it was called Salem. Okay. I mean, you know, the name Jerusalem has its origins here with with David and so on. But uh, in terms of the importance of this block of land to God, it's at the time of Abraham, because that's where Mount... Abraham is instructed by God to offer Isaac on Mount Moriah. When I just showed you on the map where Moriah is, it's north of the city. But David buys it makes it a part of his city.
1: So this is a time when Jerusalem became Jerusalem the way, that we, Jerusalem, the way we understand city Jerusalem. Into, into a city and a structure and a location.
0: And That's right. right. Jerusalem the way we understand it in prophetic scripture. This is its origin.
1: This is its origin.
0: That's why it's associated, it's always associated Jerusalem as a city, the way we understand it, he's buying a Mount Moriah and all that, is associated with David setting up the kingdom, David's kingdom, and makes Jerusalem its capital. And so who is the greater son of David? Jesus Christ, who will and does, that's the whole argument of the first ten chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, has the right to claim the throne of David. He has the right to rule over God's world, his father's rule from Jerusalem. But
1: before that, it was like a holy area, but a barren
0: area. Like, well, I'm not sure. It was completely barren, but it it wasn't it's not densely populated. This little area that I'm showing on this map, this is what the Jebusites inhabited. But it 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 gets much, much, much larger, and then under Solomon's reign, it even gets larger, and <laughs> Hezekiah's reign, it even gets larger, but. The, the Jerusalem that we think of in terms of prophetic scripture, in terms of its name and its boundaries, is associated with David. It starts with David. All right. Now, look what else David does in verse 11. And Hiram, the king of Tyre. And Tyre, you, know, you can see it on, uh, yeah, I think you can, on the map that's on page 14. Tyre is way up north. It's what is in the area called Phoenicia. So Hiram is not an Israelite. He is the king of the northern kingdom of Phoenicia, Tyre. Sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. This is building the palace. We have found that palace. Now, Latham has been excavating that area. And again, if you ever go to Jerusalem, go to Israel, they will show you that area where this excavation continues to go on. And David knew, this is a quite an important sentence, David knew that Yahweh had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David, all that God had promised to David back when he was a teenager, when he had been anointed king by Samuel and so on, is now brought to fruition. It's happened, you know, approximately um, uh, 15 years later. David is 30 years old. Then we have this curious, little bit disturbing cluster of verses. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamuah, showed Nathan, Nathan, is listed in the genealogies of Jesus. In the genealogy, Nathan is in the genealogy of Jesus. Solomon, you know who he is. Solomon is the son of Bathsheba. See, we don't know any of this yet because it's coming. But it's just telling us fact. Bar, Elisha, Nepheg, Zaphia, Elishama, Eli, Elida, and Eliphile. We know nothing of those other of those other children except Nathan and Solomon. Now, I want to make a, a comment here because you read this, this is a little bit disturbing because what is David violating? The creation ordinance of God. He's violating Genesis 2. This is a willful, defiant, disobedient act on David's part. He has many, many wives, Because... And this is the point. David is acting like a typical ancient Near Eastern king. Every ancient Near Eastern king at this time and hundreds and hundreds of years before and hundreds and hundreds of years after, they had a harem. Is that a new word to you? They had a harem. So David, all David is doing is acting like any other ancient Near Eastern king. He's unified his country. He set up a capital. He's neutralized most of his enemies. So now what does he do? He builds his harem. The other interesting thing about this is at this point, the Bible makes no ethical evaluation of what David has done. But... What you will see in the rest of the narrative of David's life is a thoroughly dysfunctional family. Because his one son, Amnon, will rape one of David's daughters to another woman, her name is Tamar, and Absalom will wait. Okay, dad, what are you going to do about this? Your son raped my sister. What are you going to do about it? What did David do? Nothing. So what does Absalom do? If you are not going to do what you should do as my dad and as the king of this country, you're not going to do anything to Amnon. I'll do something. So he has he murdered. And then what happens is a whole sequence of events, which leads to a civil war between the forces of Absalom, the son of David, and David. So all the, vice is the same thing that you see with Jacob. It's the same thing you see with Abraham. God tells Abraham, Sarah is going to have a child. They wait 25 years for Isaac, but midway through that waiting period, she's getting frustrated. She's getting impatient. So what does she do? Abraham, this typical ancient Near Eastern action. uh, I'm barren. I'm not going to have any kids. Take my servant, impregnate her. That will be our son. And who's the son born? Ishmael, which is the origin of the Middle Eastern problems today. So the Bible, it's really, the Bible gives you the standard in the creation ordinance of God and makes it clear in the law, the moral law of God, thou shalt not commit adultery, etc. But what you see is all of these people violating all of this. And God just says, well, I gave you the standard. I gave you the ethical the ethical uh, standard to follow. I made it clear as a part of my moral law, but I'm also showing you, if you don't follow it, these are gonna be the consequences. And figure after figure, leader after leader, king after king doesn't follow it, you see disaster. Jim, don't you think it's good to be
1: accountable to somebody? I mean, if, if he had someone that had enough, whatever, to step up and say, David, this is wrong. As a friend who loved him, cared about him, I mean, we talk about accountability to brothers in Christ. If we see a brother that's charitable, it's, it's grace to go to that person and talk to them. So
0: David will have two men that will start to talk to him. The prophet Gad and the prophet Nathan. They will be his accountability partners, so to speak. But in both cases, it's after he did some egregious evil, and they'll call him back. All right, now, again, I didn't want to belabor that, but it's just at this point, verse 13 through to verse 16, David is acting like any other ancient, Eastern king. The Bible makes no ethical evaluation of this at this point, but the rest of the narrative about David is going to show you what happens in his family. It's, ter- it's terrible. And it's just, if you don't follow God's perfect will, and you don't follow God's standard and don't emulate his virtues and his values, you will then have to live with the consequences. And that's the tragedy of so
1: many of these figures.
0: All right. Now I, I hope we, we might come back to this again, but do you have any questions about this map of Jerusalem as it looked at the time of David when he took it? Uh, we won't go any further than this. If we're going to get into the first and second Kings, I would show you some, some images of what this temple Solomon built might, will build, might look like. It's incredible, but that's beyond what we're doing here. So no questions about that? All right. That means you totally understand. So if he gives you a blank map next week, you'll be able to it mind,
1: Okay. it.
0: All right. Now, verse 17, then, um, it's, it's kind of a, a summary here, but I want you to notice a couple of things. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now, that the Hebrew word for stronghold is Masada. That's the Hebrew for stronghold. stronghold. Now, does that mean that David went down to the Masada along the west side of this Dead Sea? It might mean that. Because actually, as the crow flies, it isn't that far to go from Jerusalem down to Masada. is isn't that far, really. If you're going from 2,500 feet above sea level to to 900 feet below sea (laughs) level. So that's quite a, but it isn't really that far in a straight line distance. But anyway, so it it would seem as if that David is now in a defensive mode because the Philistines have invaded this area of Judah. So verse 18, now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim Now that's that's four miles southwest of Jerusalem. And if you look on this map, it's on page 14. You have to look hard, but you can see it. You got the valley of Rephaim. It's southwest of Jerusalem. So what it's a valley, what you have in this part of Judah, it's mountains and valleys. So the Philistines are in this valley. Apparently, they're going to lay siege to Jerusalem. So what does David do? It tells us in verse 19, and David inquired of the Lord, as he had been doing, now the last couple of chapters, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal, Perazim, David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore the name shall be baal per And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Now that's an interesting verse, because that demonstrates total defeat. David has neutralized the Philistine threat. And in the next paragraph, he's going to finalize it. But that they took all the idols. Remember, the, the main idol, the main god of the Philistines was Dagon. So presumably, these are idols to Dagon. Remember, if you go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Philistines had defeated Israel when Israel brought out the ark. And what they do with the ark? They took the ark down to Ashkelon and put it in the temple with Dagon. And what happened to Dagon? He kept falling over. Remember that? So it's really, it's an interesting twist. It's irony. What the Philistines had done to Israel back in Saul's reign in chapter 4, 1 Samuel, David is now doing to the Philistines as his rule is beginning. David is beginning to do what no other ruler has done up to this point in history, neutralize the threat of the Philistines. It's an amazing achievement. And then it's completed, verse 22, and the Philistines came up yet again, spread out in the valley of Rephaim, another invasion. David inquired of the Lord, and he said, you shall not go up, go around to the rear, come against them, the op- opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsams, balsam trees, rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the arm of the Philistines. So it's a totally different scenario Today, what David does is he goes south, which means he would have probably gone around the Dead Sea, came up from the south, and then God does something miraculous. He creates the sound of a massive army by a windstorm, and then David moves in, struck down the Philistines from Gebed to Gezar, a 15-mile swath of conquest. He drives the Philistines back into their land. What right now is the hotbed in the Middle East, the Gaza Strip, is Philistine territory. The Gaza Strip is the old Philistine empire. So now, for, for the most part, the threat of the Philistines to the Israel is over. We're going to come up a little bit, for the most part, that mortal threat that, that throughout the entire history of Saul's reign, they were always the threat to Israel. David is neutral. As we read twice, he and part of the Lord, shall I do this, Lord? Yes. And so it's just, it's tremendous victory. And it shows that when a king is Deuteron- following the structures of Deuteronomy 17, God will bless. That's what David's doing, and God bless him. Okay, I'm getting all excited. You guys are sitting there, I'm just thinking, isn't this exciting stuff? Yeah, this is really exciting. You're with me, aren't you? All right. Now there's something else. David must do. Jerusalem is a political capital. Jerusalem is there that king resides. Jerusalem is where the bureaucracy of the kingdom will start to be built. But it's not the religious center of the nation. So he must bring the ark to Jerusalem. And that's what chapter 6 is all about. remember, the ark had been captured by the Philistines. It goes all the way back to chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. And the ark had been taken to a little village west of Jerusalem. And it's been there for years, about 10, close to 11 years. And David said, it can't stay there. But I want you to notice how David, what David does and how he acts here. David again gathered, all, I'm in chapter 6, verse 1, David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. Now, it's difficult to know who that involves. It does not sound like it's a military group that he's amassing. It would, it, it, the assumption by most expositors this is this is much broader. In advice the tri- tribal leaders, the clan leaders, perhaps the Levites. There's more the spiritual leadership and perhaps political leadership of the nation. And David rose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Baal Judah is another name for Keriath Jerim. And if you look on, I'm, 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 I'm believing it's there, if you look on that map on page 14 and you see Jerusalem and you see the Valley of Lebanon, Keriath Jerusalem is to the west, kind of the northwest of Jerusalem. Baal Judah or Keriath Jereem so they make that trek to Kiriath Jareem northwest of Jerusalem because that's where the ark is and david which is called by the lord of hosts you know that's the yahweh the commander of the hosts of the armies of heaven it's one of the important titles of god in the old testament who sits enthroned on the chair. What's that referring to? That's referring to the ark and the mercy seat. Remember all of that? On the top of the ark is the cherubim. They're, they're lit, the wings come together. You go back and read it uh, in, in, in in Exodus where, when, when Moses builds it and all that stuff. So this is very, very important to David. He wants to do the right thing He wants to do the thing that that would honor God to make Jerusalem not only the political capital, but the religious capital of the nation. This is where the Ark will be. And he will want to reinstitute all of the sacrifices, reinstitute all that was a part of the ritual and ceremonial law of Israel. And he wants to do it in Jerusalem. But he must not have read the law he must not have read Exodus 25 he must have been presumptuous all I have to do is to get the ark to Jerusalem it doesn't matter how I get the ark to Jerusalem oh in God's eyes it does matter how you get the ark to Jerusalem notice the language of verse 3 And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart. That's not how you're supposed to move God's Ark. How are you supposed to move God's Ark? Levites are to carry it on their because the Ark has little holes in it little latchets with holes in and you put poles through it, that the measurement of it is clear in Exodus 25, how the Levites are to carry the ark meticulously with great care. Is David following that? No, he puts it on the base of a royal blue 911 Porsche. <laughs> that was to see if you're awake. It's a new car. That's, he's not supposed to do it that way. God is very, very specific. This ark is the manifestation of God's Shekinah, of his glory. It's very important to God how you handle it, how you move it, how you transport it. And that's the responsibility of the Levites. That's not how David does it. And brought it out of the house of Abinadab, that's, the house where it was staying there, at it was in that house for over 10 years. And Usa and I, who the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart. One of them had the wheel of the 911 Royal Blue Porsche. The other one was in the passenger seat. Riding shotgun. Riding shotgun. <laughs> now I'm making that up. But again, who is supposed to move the ark? The Levites. These guys aren't Levites. With the ark of God, and Hayu went out before the ark, and David and all the house were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. They're so excited about this. David worshipfully is, is leading as the people are heading to Jerusalem. He's so excited. And there, there are, I mean, this is amazing. Presumably David brought instrumentalists with him because they're, they're singing and they have instruments and they're making all this joyful noise. In verse 6, And when they came to the threshing floor of nakon Uzzah, put out his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it for the oxen stumble. Now you can, you can picture in your mind's eye how this happened. Because by the way, this area, as you know, Judah is mountainous, it's rugged. So they're, they're heading up to Jerusalem, which it's right. And you can just, you can see that this is a new cart. Oxen are pulling it and you're all one of these, it hits a rock and the ark is about to fall off the cart. So Uzzah naturally reaches up to grab it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the Ark of God. And you're sitting back and you're saying, time out, hold
1: it. What a horrible thing to happen. The
0: error that's mentioned, I read from the ESV translation, the error that they mention in the middle of verse 7 is the error of not following God's direction, how to transport the ark. And you're thinking as an American, and your immediate response is,
1: that's not fair.
0: It wouldn't cost $1,000. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you just, viscerally just, and instinctively, we say, Lord, that's not fair. That's, how could you possibly do that? David was acting presumptuously. And for some reason, and the scriptures are not clear. for some reason, either David did not remember it, David didn't read it, David didn't ask it, hey, what does the law say about moving the ark? None of that happened. So David's going to do it his way. And poor Uzzah. And David was angry, in verse 8, because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And he names that place Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom. So now David, he's sort of paralyzed. He doesn't know what to do. The Bible doesn't tell us here that he went back and read Exodus 25 and reviewed all the clear directions of how you move the Ark. But that fear of the Lord is real. He saw the anger of God manifest. because you did not follow my direction on how to move the ark, which is the manifestation of my Shekinah, which is the center of everything that this covenant means. It's. I hope I'm not being blasphemous. It's almost like God is saying, how dare you do this your way? How dare you defy my clear
1: instruction?
0: All right, we have five minutes. Let's see if we can do this. Verse 12, and it was told in David, we're assuming advisors, counselors, whatever people, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belonged to him because of the ark of God. And David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. We have to infer that David got out his ESV study Bible read Exodus 25, was reminded of how you're supposed to move the ark, the Levites and the poles and all that was a part of that, it's really in us. The Hebrew here is not quite clear. Verse 13, And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ark and a fattened animal. The language of the Hebrew seems to be something like this. A mm-hmm. Levite would walk six steps, and they would offer sacrifice. And they walk another six steps, and they would offer It seems to be a continuous present birth. But there's practicality about it there. That's so, yeah, I mean, you know, because now they're, they're beyond karyat but there's still several miles there to get to Jerusalem. So it's almost unbelievable in the real meaning of that overused word today. It's almost unbelievable that every six steps he sacrificed. Perhaps the way to understand it is they took the sixth step to begin the journey. And God, excuse me, David sacrificed to the Lord. Lord, I'm going to do it the right way. Because if, if you go back to First Chronicles 15, it explains to us that David moved it the proper way. And he wants the Lord's blessing. Take six steps, we're going to do a sacrifice to the Lord. Or it could mean that every six steps they sacrifice. Jim, why didn't I go
1: back to the Levites? Mean, what was the art doing in that first
0: well, you you got to go back to 1 Samuel 4 and 5 and when, you know, the, the, the Philistines you know, sent it back. You remember, they sent it on a cart because God was just cursing the Temple of Dagon and creating all those, the mice and run. We think it's probably a plague. But they sent it back, and it stayed there um, at cariath for over 10 years.
1: Oh, Why? Wow.
0: Well, it's, it, well. It's, it, it, presumably it's largely because of Saul, his unwillingness to act and, and complete it. But the, the question was, where would you take it? Because there was no capital city. Because remember, you, you got to go back a little bit. Remember, where, where was the ark before the Philistines took it? In Shiloh, which is in the Ephraim land ground, a little bit north. That's where it was for a good bit of the history of Israel from the conquest on. But in the monarchy, that starts to change and it'll end up in Jerusalem. But Shiloh, then the, the, the Philistines took it, and then it stayed until David, what we're studying right now, it stayed at Kerataria. And that seems to infer that there are no
1: sacrifices.
0: You know what I mean? That, that there's, there's no atonement for sin during this period. There's no, the ceremonial strictures of the law are not being carried out. And that's what's so exciting. Of, and I, I think it's the right way to say exciting, about what David is doing, because he wants to reinstitute all of the atoning sacrifices, which enables God to deal with the sin of the nation. And so, I mean, this isn't only, this is, This has incredible, I'm, I'm out of time here, but that's what's really important. David is not only you know, consolidating his rule, unifying the tribes, he's bringing back, we believe, because of what follows, the practice of the ceremonial law that God has mandated to atone for sin. He's reinstating that. And that is so important because of, of uh, apparently during those, years, those latter years in Saul's reign, that was not going on. All right. Um, I'm not quite sure what to do here, but it's a quote. But let me read verse 14. I'll pose a question, which we will answer next week. And David danced. Fundamentalists don't like that word. David danced before the Lord with all his might. What does that mean? If you want to know, you got to come back next week. We're going to talk about that. This is an extraordinary statement. I want to, because what is important is then what follows with Michelle, his wife, who's now back to him. And we talked about that last week. There's a lot of other things I want to talk about. What is going to start some of it with with my answer to David? I mean, to Fred's question about David. So I mean, this is really, really an important part of David's role here, and I hope we're, we're creating some excitement and some interest. Okay. Everybody online with me? Yeah. All right. Everybody in the room really I know is with me, so I'm going to pray let you go, go out to this incredible spring day we're having. Father, we're reminded again from our study this morning of how important Jerusalem is to you. you uh, in your providence, you organized the details for David to take the city of Jebus becomes the city of David, Zion, Jerusalem, and it will become not only the capital of his kingdom, it will be the place. As he brings the ark back, and he he establishes, reestablishes the burnt offerings, the sacrifices, he's enabling the sin of the nation to be atoned for through the ceremonial law. This is incredibly important. David is a Deuteronomy 17 king. He's a shepherd king. He's leading his people in a servant manner, as a shepherd, and restoring the importance of worship and devotion and atonement for sin. It's such an important, incredibly important threshold in the history of the nation and in the the, the monarchy period, which begins with David. And Lord, there's a greater David that the Bible speaks of, and that's, of course, Jesus. And his atonement for sin, in the words of Hebrews, is once for all. So all of this just knits together into a perfect story. But it, it goes on for another thousand years till Jesus shows up. So, Lord, as we are going our separate ways now, we ask for your blessing. We ask for your watch care over us. Uh, the specific items of what Fed was praying for, you know them. Uh, would you meet those as well? So we commit the rest of our day to you as we go into it. We want to represent you well. We ask you for that Christ name. See you next week.